pray you would take it a step further and that you would take that step. Some of us have tried very hard to close the distance between us and you, between our failures and your perfection. And Lord, this morning, right now, we ask the grace of God across this room to close the distance. We thank you, Father, for who you are, that we are known and loved by you, that we can't make Jesus not love us, that you care about us deeply, faults and all. Help us not to give up on ourselves. Help us to not give up on those around us because you have never given up on loving us. And we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you so much, team. God bless you. I've reached that age where I need glasses, but I've reached that stage where I need glasses for up close and far away. Hey, Ron Parsons and Tim Parsons, great to see you here this morning. That feels Timish, Pastor Timish, huh? <laughs> Good to see you guys. Those are great, great long-term friends from, from the church that we were at for years. And uh, if you're a new guest and you're here, uh, we're grateful you're here, and please go out of your way to introduce yourself to us. We'd love to get to know you better. And just a reminder too, those cards in front of you are not there for us to send you spam. They're there for us to make a connection with your life and see how we can bless you and help you in your journey of getting closer to God. But coming back to my conversation here, I, I've reached that point where I need, like I've got, gla- I need glasses for distance, but I also need them for up close reading. How many of you feel my pain on that, right? And so now I'm like, I always wondered why older people did this when they were like at books and stuff. And now I get it. It's because I need bifocals. And so I'm going to be seeing the eye doctor soon enough. But these are worthless uh, when I'm trying to read, and so I'm just going to deal with it and move on. And uh, so glad to have you here. Uh, we are excited about our Christmas celebration coming up. We've kind of coined this thing we call it the live or living nativity. We used to do it outside, and then we realized people just totally trashed the parking lot and never came into the place that we're believing where they can develop a relationship with God is in this building. And so we said, how about instead of us letting people drive through the parking lot, what if we brought animals inside the building? And so this Christmas season, we're going to modify this room. It's gonna be literally Bethlehem's manger and we're gonna have sheep and goats and uh, alpacas and llamas and (laughs) we might even get a gecko or two, I don't know. But uh, just so you know, out in the foyer, we have these little things. Usually it says you're invited, and it's an easy way for you to invite someone out here. But I'm telling you, this would be something that if you invited friends and families or neighbors to, you would not be disappointed or embarrassed. We really pull all the stops out on this. Following service, we're going to have a petting zoo so kids can pet baby chickens and, and baby sheep. And I think they're even getting a little pig in there. And so... Um, pre-bacon, so we will just totally enjoy the service, but I encourage you to take a couple of these with you, and just, it's the easiest opportunity for you to invite somebody. If you're nervous and you're kind of like, I don't know whether, this is something, it's a no-brainer. We have two services uh, at the typical 8.30 and 10.30, and uh, while we were planning on calling it quits for that, uh, Sienna, our, our office administrator and bookkeeper, said to us, we need a candlelight service for Christmas Eve. And so I, I said, well, okay, you know, Pastor Caitlin really is hands-on with the live nativity. There'll be straw everywhere. And, and she said, nope. She said, I will do what needs to be done to make this happen. And so it's going to be a really enchanted evening. If you have little kids, I encourage you to dress them up in their Sunday best. And here's the miracle. It's going to be a 45-minute service. 
How many of you know I'm getting back to my Catholic roots with that 45-minute mass? But a bang, but a bong, but a done. And so that's my commitment to you on Christmas Eve. And so I believe uh, information is already on the website. I think that's about 6.30 that we're doing that. And so 6, 6 to 6.45. So you can totally still do everything you plan locally with family. We'll be leaving and going to Rhode Island afterwards, but it's gonna be so enchanted. We've just tripled all of our candle arbors that we have for this, and we give out uh, 3D glasses that make everything look like a starlight to all the kids, so it'll be an all-hands-on-deck Christmas event, all families in service uh, for all of these services there. Look forward to that, and thank you so much, staff, for making all these things possible. Well, I want to talk with you today about a series here as we go through Christmas, just simply a tagline. I'm calling it Holloways, right? We have the holidays, but I want to talk to you about the Holloways, the things, the way that we act and the way things go down every holiday season. Now, what I don't want to do is talk to you about a bunch of topics because we're firm on letting God's word speak for itself. But I want to focus these next several weeks on passages of scripture and things that we can learn about people and how they navigated the holidays when they originally happened back in the time of Jesus and the lessons we can learn so that we're getting closer to God and not dragged further away from commercial Christmas. And with that in mind, I'd like to show you this little humorous video clip that kind of speaks the message of what I'm scratching at. Hey, neighbor, you need a hand? I'm I'm good, thanks. Don't worry, I'm coming. Santa's little helper's on his way. Hey, (laughs) ha ha. So you got the star that'll guide Chris Kringle to your chimney. Good move, my man. Oh, uh, no, it's the uh, star star of Bethlehem. Right, yeah, Bethlehem, North Pole. Same thing, right? Nope, uh, no, uh, no, no, uh, sorry. It's the, uh, the star that, you know, the Magi. Right, Magi. What is the Magi? I found something on the web about emojis. Check it uh, out. Uh, the Magi? The, uh, the, the wise men who came to see the Messiah. The, the, the Christ? The uh, son of God. Him? Yeah. Then he would grow up to become Santa. No, no, no. He's gonna grow up and he's gonna pay for the sins of the world. Guess that'd be a pretty hefty price tag, huh? Hmm. Yeah. That's why it's called Christmas. Christmas. Well, I wish you would've told me all this before I spent my Christmas bonus and all that junk over there. Thanks a lot. Merry Christmas. No, I, I... 
love that skit. Isn't it, like this holiday season is awesome. How many of you remember when you were a little kid and Christmas was around the corner and it's not like you screamed with words but everything inside of you just went (laughs) Am I the only one that did that? All of you dignified among me are looking at me like, really, seriously? I just thought it was gonna explode internally, man. I just like, if internal combustion, human combustion, this is how it happens, man. But I loved Christmas, still do, love it. Uh, And I love gifts, you know, they talk about different love languages and relationship and counseling and some people are works of service, some people are quality time, some people are, you know, nice words of affirmation and then there are those of us that are gifts. It's the gift of bling bling, right? Say you love me, bling. Um, And Christmas is just that time where we can do it but it's so crazy the way the holidays are in that We have so commercialized Christmas that we've had to say stuff like, Jesus is the reason for the season, right? Jesus is the reason for the season because the season gets so far away from us that it becomes something and the focus becomes something that it it never was. And I just kind of wondered maybe God's word could speak to us a little bit about ways to navigate the season that we keep the reason in the middle, right in front of us during the holiday seasons. I was kind of thinking it, like really this pretty much November right through New Year's is a gauntlet of holiday, right? There's Thanksgiving when it's okay for you to eat yourself into oblivion as a sign of gratitude. And as you drool on the couch and pass out and can't stay awake for the movies that are playing, you then come to Christmas where you buy gifts. And in fact, all of the gifts never go to the person whose birthday it really is, Jesus, right? We give gifts to each other. And then we spend way beyond our means. And then New Year's Day comes where all of a sudden we give ourselves a pass for all the crazy overspending, overeating kind of thing is. And then New Year's Day comes in, we're depressed and we're like, I need to go on a diet. I need to go on a diet. And then you're like, and then February 1st happens and then you're like, where did this visa bill come from? We need to redo the budget. We need to redo the budget. Sometimes I wonder if holiday seasons for the way they're set up, we'd be better off without them. And... It's awesome. By the way, there's a fruit in when God is a part of your life that kind of grows off of your life. It's called self-control. And this is one where I'm just kind of like, oh, Jesus, produce this in my life during this holiday season, please. Um, But it's easy to let the seasons get away with us. And so what I want to do is just turn our attention to a very familiar passage in Matthew chapter 2 and talk about the Magi, talk about Herod, Really, Herod's the murderer, then you have the Magi, and then you have his majesty, Jesus, followed by the man, Joseph, and hopefully we'll get to most, if not all of this. But if you, have, uh, if you don't have a Bible in your phone or in an iPad or a device there in front of you, you could grab yourself one of the Pew Bibles. We're gonna read through in the version, the ESV, although any version is, is easy enough for you to follow along. We wanna put this out here. It's going to be a little bit of reading, about 23 verses, but well worth the journey. Are you with me? You ready? Hajime. So he's saying judo. Hajime. Ready? Here we go. Go. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star It rose and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled 
and all Jerusalem with him. <coughs> Excuse me. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes and the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of, of Judea. I say Judea, but it reads Judah there. For among you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people. You guys notice, remember we were talking a few weeks ago about shepherds, good shepherds, false shepherds. All the great leaders of Israel were always shepherds. They always uh, had that title here. Even the Messiah is pitched this way. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained by them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I may too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose and went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. You just got a raise, man. <laughs> Thank you. Anybody want to sit? No? Okay. Thank you, Pastor Dylan. They offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed their way, uh, their own, to their, uh, they departed to their own country by another way. Verse 13. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise and take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and he took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt. I've called my son. Herod, then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years and under, and uh, two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, a voice heard in Ramah, weeping in a loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused uh, to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod had died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. Pray with me. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray that your word would speak life. God, I pray that you would speak to the to the quiet and private parts of our life. And Lord, that you would help us to keep Jesus as the reason of the season. In your name we pray, amen. amen. This is really a part of the Bible that I love looking at because it's, it's actually part of where I did part of my doctoral studies. And uh, a lot of it was in writing, not only in the Bible, but looking at writings outside of the Bible. For, for many years, a lot of people were saying, Gospels aren't really accurate. People like Pilate don't exist. The Bible's not true. It's not accurate. It's just a bunch of people writing stories and 
you know, those kind of things. And, and what's amazing is, is that if you look at the stuff from history outside of the Bible, people who weren't thinking about the Bible, in fact, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John weren't even written when these things were being written, it is amazing how much what, is, what the Bible says lines up with who we know these people to be historically. Take, for instance, Herod. Herod the Great is actually a, uh, a historical figure, and we call him the murderer in what we're talking about here today. We found his, his coffin. This is the coffin of Herod. It was just recently discovered, and it's one of the few royal coffins that have been smashed into oblivion. The reason it's destroyed is because the Jewish people hated this guy. I mean, they hated this guy. Now, the thing I love about our community here is is that we have a very diverse group politically, right? I could sit here and talk about our current president and some of you'd be like, yes, and then some of you'd be like, oh no. And then we could talk about our previous president and some of you would say yes, and then some of you would say, oh no. Here's the thing at the end of the day, listen, the Bible says submit to the governing authorities that are above you, and um, the one thing I appreciate is, is that murder, death, torture, and all of those things is not happening for Christians. We're in a great nation, it's not perfect, we know that our leaders aren't perfect, but at the end of the day, I'm not believing for the United States of America to save me, I'm believing that the Lord Jesus Christ is the one that's come to save me, right? So, of course, The people that you don't like are gonna disappoint you a lot easier, but even the people that you appreciate in politics are gonna disappoint you, and I really appreciate that as our community, we're very respectful here politically, because all men are human, all men have flaws, and uh, we appreciate that, but when you talk about politics in the first century, Herod is about, like, he would be the last person I would want to be my president, or my king. This guy, when you read in the Bible about this guy, he's a conniver, he's a manipulator. He goes up to the wise men and they say, we've come here to to worship the one born king of the Jews. He's like, really, where's the baby? I'd like to worship the baby. No, I'd like to kill the baby is what he'd like to do. He was a really bad guy. And then we read in the Bible and it says that when he finds out that the wise men don't come back, he sets a date and he says, okay, they said the star appeared here. That means there's two years. So I'm not gonna leave any loose ends. Let's just kill every baby between the age of two and under. And we look at that and we're like, I don't know. Really, seriously, sounds a lot like Egypt. Sounds a lot like Pharaoh. Maybe it's not a real story. Let me tell you something. When you look at the character of Herod, you're like, this guy totally would do something like this. Now, there's a historian who wrote in the first century, his name's Josephus, and I don't wanna get lost because this isn't a classroom and this is, this is not a lecture, but I just want you to see in the notes that I gave you, all of these things are there. I had a really great professor in my undergraduate years ago, and he said this, Paul, cite your sources, cite your sources. People would always say stuff like, you know, outside of the Bible it says this, and in the Bible it says that, but no, I could never check it. So all I did was is I took the equivalent of about 10 hours of study, put it inside brackets. If you wanna look up in the book of Josephus, you can do that, we're not gonna do that here. But I want you just to see the character of this guy. Okay, first of all, he doesn't like his mother-in-law. So he kills her. He doesn't like his father-in-law. So he kills him. He doesn't like his little brother-in-law. So he kills him. Then his wife is upset with the situation. So he says, let's roll her in there too. He kills her. Then he moves on to his two sons from that woman. And then he has an oldest son from another marriage and he kills that kid. 
And then he decides, hey, why stop there? My brother, he's, let's get him. And then in fact, it says this in the book of Josephus, it says that when Herod died, before he was laid in that coffin that, you, that, that we are looking at here, before he was laid to rest inside that thing, he knew that when he died, nobody would shed a tear. This guy was like a, the, he had more in common with like, the leader of Al-Qaeda and the leader of, you know, some kind of the worst group you could think of. He had more in common with them than any kind of president or leader in the nation. He said, when I die, nobody's going to shed a tear. Nobody's going to mourn. So he gathered together almost a hundred of the top leaders in, that were loved and respected in Israel, brought them into a theater, and he said, the moment that you get word that I die, I want you to kill all of them so that at least there's crying for my death. Pretty bad dude, right? So does it kind of give you any pause to think that somebody like this would be like, kill pretty much every kid from the age of two and under and wipe them out? Of course not. Of course not. Herod's an animal. He's out of his mind. And the reason why is because it's not about God's kingdom, it's about his kingdom. It's not about God's rule in his life, it's about his rule over the face of the earth. And what really triggers this for him, look back at chapter two, verse one. Listen to this. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared, I'm sorry. (laughs) Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men came from the east to Jerusalem saying, where is him who was born king of the Jews? Now we look back at that and we're just kind of like, okay, you know, king of the Jews and king of the Think about this. Here's something that you don't get. Everybody who wrote in the Bible and in the Gospels or in the Old Testament, they assume that you understand what their world is like. They assume that you understand, you know what Herod's really like. They they assume that you understand what phrases like this mean. That phrase, king of the Jews, is a total bomb. Here's why. Herod, King Herod, when when he was coming to power, He was initially a governor over the land of Israel. And how many of you have ever heard of Julius Caesar, first emperor of Rome? Well, he needed some allies that would control his kingdom. And so he, he, along with Mark Anthony, the story of Mark Anthony and Cleopatra, right? They were all kind of friends together. And he said, make Herod king of the Jews. And he puts a crown on him and he says, Herod, you're gonna be my rep in Judea. You're gonna be a tetriarch, not quite a king, but I'm gonna put this over your head. You rule things for me. And so Herod liked that and he got a real good taste of power, but that wasn't enough for him. And so then finally what happened is, is all of his buddies got in a fight with the next Caesar. And normally what happens in the ancient world is, is that whoever the losing side is, they kill everybody. And this is what this guy does. This shows you his personality. He walks into the presence of Augustus Caesar with his crown on, the new emperor, and he says, I wanna tell you something. I wasn't on the battlefield with Mark Anthony when he lost to you, but if I was there, I would have been with him. I would have fought with him. In fact, I would have made it my mission to make sure that you did die on the battlefield. He was my friend, I don't deny that. However, he takes off his crown and he says, the loyalty that I gave to him, I give to you and I will be equally a friend and ally. And, and Augustus Caesar looks at him and he laughs and he picks up the crown and he puts it back on in his head and he says what's written there, which I'll just leave for you to read because we're talking about the word of God, not Josephus, but he puts the crown back on his head and he says, surely you shall be a great king with firm power and he dubs him king of the Jews. Now picture, that's what's going on historically. He hops in 
His, he hops in his car, he gets chauffeured back to Jerusalem, gets out of his chariot, walks into the palace, kicks up his feet, adjusts his crown, and in walk three or more men who say, we have come here to worship him born king of the Jews. And he's like, are those for me? For me? Well, there's a baby born. A baby? Where's the baby? I want to worship the baby. Of course he's going to kill him. This is who this guy is. Now, it's really hard for me to try and draw a parallel between our life and Herod because there's no comparison. But I'd like to draw a soft parallel as this holiday season comes to give some of us a warning to make sure that we walk into the holiday season with the right heart and the right spirit. How many of you have ever had a Christmas holiday gathering with family and friends and it ended up being the worst thing that could happen to you instead of the best thing that happened to you? And everybody's got a crazy uncle and his name isn't necessarily Herod, but he's pretty nuts, right? Or sometimes when I say holiday season or family or whatever, to some of you, you glow and you're like, I just love the holiday seasons, I love my family. For others of you, you're kind of like, holiday's actually a very difficult season in my family. It's a very hard time in my family. But here's what I see are some examples that we can take into our life and not to behave like a Herod. First of all, Herod is an example that challenges us to see what a person is willing to do to retain the throne of their life. I realize at the end of the day that life, like serving God and letting Jesus be Lord of your life and engaging your life the way that God wants you to live it is a very hands-on, full-contact thing. To sit there, there, you know, I watch this a lot often with Bible college students that are very, very young and they're just very hands-off and they're like, whatever the Lord wants to do, that's what I want. But sometimes you've got to go for what the Lord's telling you to go for and you've got you to gotta step out of the boat. You've got you've to take hold of that which Christ Jesus has taken hold of you for. Now, there are some times where that's a very sincere thing, but I think sometimes like when it comes to experiencing the will of God for our life, we have to be hands-on. I'm not talking about that right here. I'm talking about when we have such control over our life and the people that are in our life that we are the bane of everyone's existence. Think about this. When Herod steps into the picture, he's a man who disregards God's word and will to sustain his own throne. And I've come to realize something, that God invites me to be a part of his plan, but if I'm not willing to be a willing participant of his plan, he will actually still use me as a pawn to accomplish his will. How many of you want to be on the winning side, right? How many people walk into a sports team and are like, yes, you know, I just totally want to lose. This is awesome. No, man, let me tell you what, how many competitive people are there among us? The way that I see it, there are two types of people. There are winners, and that's it. <laughs> and I love this, Adam and I joke around with this, but second place is first loser, and I'm not going there, man. Do we have any sports teams here, right? I torture all of my, I, I'm, I'm a, a hybrid of New York City and Boston, and so I would always tease all of my friends in both directions. I have no sport loyalty in particular, but some of you, like, you're diehard fans, and they haven't won in a long time, and I'm kind of like, why do you want to be on that team? It's because you're loyal, right? But think about this. At the end of the day, I want to be, I know this, I know that God's will and God's throne and God's reign is the winning place for me to be in. And if I'm willing to step, 
If I'm willing to surrender my sovereignty in my life, if I'm willing to step off of my throne and high horse, if I'm willing to say to God, not my will, your will be done, if I'm willing to consult God and say, Lord, what is your will for this situation, instead of we willing my life upon the situation, I think that I'd experience a lot more joy, a lot more peace, a lot more hope. See, the problem with some of our lives here, and I've been in this place, the problem is is that you're totally in control of your life. You're totally in control of making all the choices, totally in control of, and, and here's the thing, I remember a friend of mine said this, and you hear me say this often, but a friend of mine said this to me, Paul, you're a really awesome guy, so long as I'm agreeing with you. Don't laugh at that. <laughs> Honey, thank you for not laughing. Think about that, think about that. Now, this was when I was very, very young, okay? So I've matured a lot since then, but we all have, we all have uh, flaws and weaknesses, and some of us are too strong, and some of us are, are in the other direction, but th- this person was trying to help me. He was basically saying, like, you know what? Maybe the way that you think it ought to be and the way that it's supposed to be isn't maybe the way that God wants it to be at all. James puts it like this. Do not say that you'll go to this city and do this and that, but he says, rather say if it's the Lord's will. And, and I've come to realize in my life, although we're not crazy like Herod and we're not you know, totally wrapped up in that, sometimes we can be so overbearing and controlling with the way life is supposed to be. It's like I've created this little box and I say to God in heaven, Lord, I love you and here's my life and this is where I want my work to be and my family to be and my income to be and my circumstances to be. And this is when people fit into this kind of way that they deal with me properly, they can come into my circle. But if not, you know, boom, we can totally kick them out of it. And so, Lord, I'm gonna stay right here in my little, sh- my little spot and Lord, come in and be Lord of my life. And the Lord's like way over here like saying, yeah, no. And now here's the beautiful thing about Jesus. He doesn't sit there and mock me or whatever, but he constantly steps into my small little world that I'm controlling and he invites me and he says, listen, I know this is great and this is the way it's supposed to be. All you're really trying to do is, and if you think about it, the reason why we live our lives like this is because we don't wanna suffer any loss. In economics, there's an important factor here with anything you do, it's called margin, because you are gonna suffer loss. There's no such thing as a pain-free life. There's no such thing as a problem-free life. And what God does is he steps into our little perfect world where we're trying to make sure there's no problems, there's no, no pain, no anything like that. And he says, listen, I know it's gonna require a risk for you to step out of this little kingdom you have here, but if you'll just trust me, I'm not promising that it won't be without its bumps, scrapes, and bruises, but if you'll just take me by the hand and realize that I see things you don't see and I do things you can't do, and you'll just journey with me, I'll take you places and do things in your life that you've never imagined. And that's called the life of faith. Every time God's done something amazing in somebody's life, it always meant them leaving their comfort zone to step into something unknown. He goes to Abraham and he says, I'll make you a great nation, but leave the country you're in. He speaks to you and me this morning and he says, listen, don't be a Herod and try to preserve your perfect little life because all it takes is one little dash, you know, one rock to bring that glass 
house down, but he says, listen, just trust me, take me, listen, I'm trustworthy, you can believe me. Now listen, here's the other side to this story. Some of you are very strong personalities and you flow very good and God has gifted you with the ability to make things happen. I'm not suggesting here to those of you that are like this, that God's saying just totally free float and be a, a bubble in the universe or anything like that, but, but the question is, 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 it, is it like this? If God called you out of your plan, do you have the type of listening heart? And to be, do you know his voice enough to be able to, for God to come in and say, that is really awesome, I'm proud of you. You really live out my image in being a strong person that takes dominion, but here's the thing. What I have for you isn't there, it's over there. And if you're willing to let go of this, I'll take you over to that and you'll see things happen in your life that you never could accomplish on your own if you'll just take my hand and trust me. And God invites me out of the safety of my control and into it. And that's really what it comes down to Herod. Herod thought that he could build a better world and a better life than God could. He was actually half Jewish. He was the one that rebuilt the temple. He did all kinds of church things, but he was so far from God and God's will and God's way that he was willing to murder the perfect plan of God. Imagine if Herod had his way. He would have snuffed out redemption for us, but that's not God, right? God invites me to participate in his will and his kingdom if I'm willing to abandon mine. Are you willing to do it? Are you willing to say, God, this is, I've worked really hard. Are you willing to suffer loss for the sake of Christ? Because walking out of this world will require one of two things from you. Either you will have to defend it which means that you'll hurt others and you'll get hurt yourself, or you'll have to be willing to let go of it before you have your hand firmly attached to what God has. It's, it's a step of faith. This is the life of faith. And God invites us to do that. So I think those are the things that we can learn here because when that kind of life gets out of control, you murder innocence you kill the work and presence of God in your life and sometimes in the lives of those that are around you. And if the holiday season is a time for you you don't look forward to, maybe the question I would have for you is this, could it be that you're focusing in the wrong place? It's, it's, it's really Jesus who's the reason for the season and, and gifts are awesome and Christmas is awesome and, but here's the thing, some of us, when I say family and life, you know, you just shudder because some of you, the, the people that I would name that would be a father or a mother or a brother or a sister are the source of great pain in your life. And some of us, we live in a little world because it's a world that we control and we're domineering it and we're doing great things, but then some of us live in a little tight box because we've retreated to it, because we've been so greatly hurt and so greatly damaged. And we too need to step out of that box and take Jesus by the hand and trust him and follow him to what he has for our life. Am I preaching to myself or are you guys on to something here? Like this is good stuff. And I'm just encouraging myself in the Lord here. I say all that to say this, is, is that I'm not preaching it to you like this. I'm preaching it to you like this. It's hard to let go and let God. It's easy to say it, but we need to trust Jesus to do it. Those are, that's really where Herod comes into this story, and we need to remember Jesus is the reason for the season. And I think we can learn some great lessons from the Magi. Now, who in the world are these guys, the, the, the Magi, the, the men of, uh, 
who come and show up at the story. And we, we see them every Christmas season and there's debate of if there were four or if there were three or there's no number given to this. But what I can tell you about these guys are a couple of things. First of all, back in, before the time of Jesus, there was one superpower called Medo-Persia. Basically, it was Turkey and Iran and they were two powers working together. It was kind of like a superpower alliance. And the Magi were in the country of Turkey. And they tried to take power, political power, to be kings, but it failed. And so rather than just calling it quits and giving it up, they said, well, what if we became influencers of kings? And so they dedicated themselves to science, philosophy, medicine, and some of the greatest technology and the greatest knowledge in the field of medicine, in the field of, of the study of the stars, all of that came from them. While Europe was totally in the dark ages, running around in mud huts, barely with technology, you had, you had people in this part of the world, the Magi's in particular, who were totally creating mathematical calculations that are used in universities today. They were actually the forerunners of, of some incredible brilliance. And they set themselves up as kind of like pagan priests. So they were like, basically take your medical doctor, your physician. How many of you love your physician, your doctor? I do, I've got an awesome doctor. So. Um, he had a doctor, and then he had his stockbroker, the take a stockbroker, and then mix that along uh, with a uh, science university professor, coupled with a history professor. Totally pick your favorite pastor, like Stephen Furtick or whoever it is that you love there. Mix them all together, and then squeeze them through, and then that's what the Magi were. They were totally all that. And they said, we're not gonna be the kings because if you get power, you have to defend it. But they were the guys that would show up when kings were being born. They showed up in the Middle East for kings constantly. They showed up in Rome at different times when Caesars were being inaugurated. They were highly respected. They were the, on the cutting edge of technology at that time. And they definitely saw a good thing and they were able to recognize it. Now here's the other side to it. Mixed into all of that awesomeness, it would be a mistake for you to think that they were godly Christian or Jewish people because at the same time, they were the forerunners of the zodiac as we know it. They were astrologers. They weren't just astronomers. They were charting out the stars, but they were also in a raw form of astrology. Can I just say this to you as your pastor who loves you? And, and I know we're at all different kinds of levels. So when I say this, some of you are gonna be like, why is he saying that? That makes no sense. But we're all on different levels here. But God's plan for your life is not found by your zodiac sign. Can I just say that? Wait, and here's, here's why, here's why. And I'm not saying that to you, if you look at that, I'm not saying that to you, shame. I'm not trying to embarrass you. Here's the thing, do you wanna look to the scars, stars for your sign or do you wanna look to the one who created them? Right? Do you wanna look to the one who created them? And, and listen, listen. In fact, God gives a prohibition for this and I'm doing so horrible with this, keeping up with it. Yeah, here we go, all right, I'm on target. Deuteronomy 17.3, God says this, he says, talking about some of the people uh, have gone and served other gods and worshiped them, or the sun, or the moon, or any of the hosts of heaven, which I have forbidden. If you are a follower of Christ and you are a follower of your zodiac sign, you are, you're, you're in danger of being led in the wrong directions. Now, I like a good fortune cookie every once in a while too. So I'll whip it open and be like, today you will meet somebody significant. And I'm like, that's the Dunkin' Donuts cashier that helped me out. Amen, you know? But those things are written in so general, they're gonna hit it every once in a while. And, you know, 
Listen, that's not God's plan for your life. God's plan and God's purpose for your life is found in this book. And if you've never read through this thing, you need to because God's got incredible things through your life. And it's not gonna be a star in the heaven, but this book will shine into your life and give you wisdom and give you direction and give you hope and give you correction and will change you forever. And the reason why I think America as a church as a whole is not being transformed into the image of Jesus in the way that it should be is because the church as a whole is not picking up this book the way it should be. And, and uh, thank you for those applause. I just, and listen, here's, let me just say this straight. I'm not saying this to try and make anyone feel ashamed if you struggle to pick up the Bible. But I am saying to you that your world is gonna be so small if you don't, you don't get into it. In fact, in the new year, we're gonna do a series on the prophets, we're gonna call it spoken word. Yo, yo, I don't know, I just throw a title out there and we end up reading the Bible anyway, but reason why is because the, the prophets are the least read books in the church, period. And if you read some of the stuff that the prophets say, you're gonna be like, you might hear me sometimes be like, wow, that was pretty harsh, he's pretty judgmental or whatever. Good grief, man, you don't want Isaiah showing up at your doorstep or Ezekiel or, or, um, or Jeremiah or Hosea or those guys just let it rip. But this is why so many times the church kind of looks at who God is and says, that's not my loving God and you're absolutely right, it isn't your loving God because that God is a, crea- a creation of your imagination. The God that we serve and love is a God who calls things as they are and he's a God who totally is somebody that's willing to challenge us and to change us and tells us to raise the bar in our life instead of lowering it. And I don't know how I got on that rant, but this is like, a, but as a whole, I just feel like people are following stars and they're following that and God's totally given something. You're not like a wise man that has to figure it out in the stars. You've got the very words of God, the very oracles of God here. Open the book up, start reading it. Better for you to spend five minutes with God reading his word genuinely than 50 minutes that you wish you did but haven't done for a year. God will change you and your life with this book. But look at these guys, these wise men, they show up, they pop on the scene, and they have some gifts. They've got gold, frankincense, and myrrh. These are the, these are the gifts. Actually, just if I could, can I just go historical geek for you for just a second? You give me permission to do this? You're looking at the oldest church in the world. This is in Nazareth. Dave Munley is gonna be with me in a matter of about eight weeks where we'll be standing right in here. This is one of the original churches and most likely the location where Jesus was born, but it's been so developed you can't even recognize it for what it is. But what's amazing about this is, is that the Persians, the, the, the wise men were actually Persians and on that wall, on the top right, you can see kind of like old faded painting and most of it's fallen off the plaster. There used to be up on this wall a picture, not this exact picture, but one of the wise men that were there. And what's amazing is, is they were dressed the way that a Persian would dress. And so in the, in, in the time of, of the Arab age, Muslims were going across the whole ancient world and whenever there was a church, they either destroyed it or they transformed it into a mosque. Almost all of the ancient churches were lost forever except when they came to Nazareth, the oldest and first church in the world. And they look up on the wall and they see this picture of the Magi and they're like, wait a second, that's the way we dress. And so they're about to torch the place and the guy, Hakim is the leader, he says, boys, leave this one alone, I kinda like this one. And actually, it was actually, uh, 
uh, their own nation seeing themselves reflected on the wall there pictured the Magi that caused that church not from being burnt to the ground. But in there, they show up with these three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. These are gifts that were given to a king in the ancient world. In fact, all of these are reflective of the Messiah and the gifts that people like Isaiah or the psalmist all prophesied would take place. For instance, Psalm 72, 10, 11, and 15 read like this. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Shiva and Shiva bring gifts. May all the kings fall down before him and all the nations serve him. May, they, uh, may he live May gold of Sheba be given to him. And Isaiah, when talking about frankincense, says that all the nations count to you, uh, come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you. Young camels of Midian and Ephah, and all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news and praise to the Lord and myrrh. Interestingly enough, whenever the, the wise men, the magi would write, they would write with a special ink that had myrrh embedded in it. And myrrh was sprinkled into the very robes of kings when they were coronated. And in Psalm 45, 8, it says, your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. All of this is pointing to say, this is him. This is the king. This is the Messiah. This is royalty. And when I look at the Magi, here's what I would love for us to see here this morning, is that they actually give us a certain mindset and a certain way that we should conduct ourselves in our life with Jesus, and in particular in the holiday season. And here's what I see from them as I was kind of meditating on this, first of all, it's important for you to realize that God's at work among the young churched, and we need to direct them. And my question to you is this, are you? Are you? I'm not saying this to embarrass or shame you, but let me ask you a question, rhetorical. If you believe that heaven is real and hell is real, if you believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and the only way we get to Father, when was the last time you told someone about it? Let me ask you this question. When was the last time you led somebody or offered somebody, forget if they received or accepted it, when was the last time that you invited somebody to allow Jesus Christ to be the king of their heart? When? See, our beliefs dictate our behaviors. Jesus came to the earth, he didn't want to become king, he was king, and he invites us to jump into that will and into that way, but the Magi, think about this, these guys aren't even church people. You know what's amazed me? I used to think like, I'm a Christian, and when I show up, I'm bringing Jesus with me, and you know what I came to find out? A lot of times, although Jesus shows up in worship in the church, he's on the move a lot more outside of the church than he is inside of it, and in fact, when I freak out, and I'm kind of like, oh, I wonder what this person will think, or you know what I've watched? I've watched Jesus at work in the heart of junkies. I've watched Jesus when I've had conversations with people who are homeless in the woods of Tewksbury, and I'm like, oh my goodness, God is working on their life. God's talking to them. I've walked into offices and mortgage companies with some of the biggest pagans you'd ever meet and been like, oh my goodness, Jesus is totally trying to get a hold of them. He's been working on them more than I've been working on them, and man, maybe I should totally be the light. What does the Bible say? Let your what? Let your shine before men, glorify your Father who's in heaven. We're the light now, we're the star, we're the guide. 
And I get that you need some long-term plans with people. I've, we've got a couple of neighbors and we've got long-term plans with them. We've got family members, we've got long-term plans. But I think, I think it's amazing that we should just come to understand that God's already at work. Now look at this. Here's the other thing that these guys tell us. They tell us that Jesus is worth the journey. Listen to this, verse one. Flip back to your Bible right there in verse one. Chapter two, verse one. Now after Jesus was born in Judea, Bethlehem, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. These guys are like way over here and they see a sign over there and their journey took them months, took them tons of money, and then it wasn't like they were just paying for the journey, then they paid gifts and tribute to him, that's kinda like going to Disney, right? You pay to get there and then they take everything away from you, right? <laughs> it's Disney, right? But here's the thing that, that I realized from these guys. Man, when you see God at work over there, good grief, don't stay here. Now. Don't get me wrong, I'm not saying like at this point someone's like, yes, I knew that the Lord was calling me to um, you know, San Diego, California. I'm not trying to confirm anything for your life. I'm just saying like, when I live in my little box of control and I say, Lord, come here and speak into my life and use me and be Lord of my little box, the Lord's like, no, I'm Lord of everything, but I've got something over there and I'd really love if you take a journey with me because what's over there is so much greater than what's over here. See, Jesus is worth the journey. I really realize as I'm getting older, I just don't like walking across the street, walking across the house, let alone walking across the neighborhood or let alone walking across the world. What are some ways we can do it? Let me tell you where God's working. He's working in a place called Guatemala where we had missionaries here. You're kind of like, Lord, I'll do whatever. You might be a nurse, you might be a doctor, you might be you know, somebody that has something or you might just have a heart of compassion. You know what, we're going to Guatemala. Get on a plane with us. Go watch what happens when we put shoes on the feet of people who have none. Watch what happens when we put glasses over the face of people that have never been able to afford them. Look what happens when we see young kids, boys and girls, who were victims of sex trafficking, set free and totally receiving the love of God through people who aren't asking or taking anything away from them. That's a journey. Journey up to any of the leaders in this church and say, hey, I don't feel like I ha have anything much to offer. How can I help? I guarantee you they will overwhelm you with stuff. We need ushers. You might, you know what, take a journey with your musical talent. Uh, Carrie, it must get exhausting having to sing every single week, right? Like, no, you love it, you know? But I mean, just like in the sense, like some of you have beautiful voices or you have beautiful voices that could be developed or amazing talents or some of you have trades and gifts. Do you know what, this pastor, some of you, you know what we, you know what we need right now? I'm just gonna say, it. Jesus wants you to take a journey on a bus because we don't have a bus driver for every service. We have people that come to this church that have no way of getting here unless somebody picks them up in the bus. This past Wednesday, when we were decorating the church, we were in able to bring those people because they weren't here and I think we're going to experience some Sunday mornings where that's going to happen. Now listen, I mean, there's tons of stuff for you to do. Just take a journey. Take a journey. You don't understand, Pastor Paul, my life is so complicated and so complex and all those kind of things. Yeah, it is. But Jesus is worth the journey and I think that that's what the wise men tell us. He's worth the journey. I think another thing is, is that they found joy 
in the right things. Look at verse 10. Skip over with me here to verse 10. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Like that's a lot of words for saying basically they were really excited. How many of you remember when you were a kid and Christmas was coming? I talked about it at the beginning of service where you're like, ah! like that's what's going on here. They rejoiced greatly with exceeding joy. Do you know what a sign of depression is? Things that should bring you a smile and a laugh and, and motivate you. Don't do that anymore. Sometimes we're trying to find joy in the wrong things. We're trying to find joy and contentment in things that, that and, and yet these guys find exceeding joy in the right things. They see a sign from heaven and they're like, this is awesome, we're going for it, we're not gonna miss it. And I think that for some of us, every once in a while, God will give us a glimmer or a glimpse of something and joy happens for your life, not when you wait for something to happen to you, but when you totally look for an opportunity from God and you go for it and you pursue it and you chase it and you make it happen. Here's another thing that I learned from these guys. Jesus is worthy of the best gifts from your life with a cheerful heart. My board members, I don't know if you're gonna get mad at me, but I'm just gonna go there. Not, not at you guys, because I, by the way, we have one of the best boards in southern New England, hands down. I know, I know a lot of them, we got an amazing board. But I was telling the board, you guys don't know this, but when it comes to giving to God, every minister gives to the district in Springfield, Massachusetts, I send, or up in that area, and I send my gift there. So on a Sunday morning, I'm sitting in the front pew and the basket goes by me, but I'm perpetually giving. My wife and I give to missions in this church and we give to other things all the time, but we're perpetually giving and we're, we believe in the tithe, we believe in giving and contributing to it. And while I was talking with the board, I said, you know, I feel like I'm not giving a good example by just letting the plate pass in front of me. Maybe I should give my tithe and a check to the church and have the church send it so that people don't get the wrong idea. Plus, we understand that there's online giving. And I'll tell you what, we'd prefer somebody jump on that. But I'm, not, I'm saying all that to say this, is that I, I said, uh, maybe I should put an empty envelope in the giving offering, but I feel weird about that. And a couple of the board members said, people do it all the time, Pastor. I was like, what? People with empty envelopes, can I tell you something? Stop wasting my envelopes, please. Stop wasting them. Why am I saying that? Because Jesus is worth your best. Stop being cheap with the Son of God. Stop ripping God off. Please. He's worth it. Look at these guys. They lay it down full throttle. They show up with gifts to a king. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They pay for a journey for thousands of miles. Now Jesus is in the temple, and then all of a sudden a widow throws two pennies in the offering. Chink, chink. And Jesus goes, whoa! And the disciples are like, what? He goes, that woman just gave more than everyone else. I mean, they had people walking in there throwing the Benjamins. They were doing all kinds of big giving. Why? Because that woman gave out of her need. Some of you in this church, can I tell you what? You set such an example the wise men could follow because you don't give out of your greed or out of your resource. You give out of your, the generosity of your heart and do it. And when I look at the wise men, they give me an example from scripture that says that God is worth the best gift of my life. And it's my time, it's my treasure and my talent. He's worthy of it, he, de- he, he looks for it and he deserves it. And listen, if you're a guest and you're here, please, we're not shaking you down. We don't want your money, you don't do that. But I'm talking about people, you're a regular part of this community. Like seriously, think of the good that we're doing. All across the back wall are tons and tons of missionaries in second and third world countries who 
who are doing things. All, of, all throughout this community, we're doing things for the glory of God. It's worth it. God deserves the best. And that's the, that's the example they give us. Lastly, this. Think about this. That gift that they gave, the Bible says that they went down into Egypt and they lived for about two years. How were they, how were they sustaining what they were doing down there? I'll tell you how. Joseph took that gold, that frankincense, and that myrrh. And that was not used so that Jesus could get an Oshkosh Bagosh stroller. How many of you are like that? You know you're like that. You know, get my baby the very, very best. You know, I'm like, we're going to the dollar store. <laughs> they got to have a stroller there for a buck. <laughs> if not, we'll find it at Walmart, you know. <clears throat> but they've got to have the best of the best of the best. Joseph was like, maybe this is the reason why it was here. To sustain the work of God. To sustain the Son of God. To sustain the family of God. Everyone's looking for Jesus. I think he wants to be found by us. But here's the last thing, and I'm going to call up the worship team. The last person in this story, his majesty, Jesus Christ, reads this, Numbers 24, 17. What's amazing is, is that every depiction of the kings in the ancient world, every depiction of the Messiah, every depiction of even secular kings who could have cared less who Jesus was or the God of Israel was, always marked who and what they were with a star. In fact, right here, you're looking at the spot where they quote unquote say Jesus was born here. I don't know who did that. Like if all of a sudden Jesus popped out and Joseph said, let's mark this. You know, I just don't know. I don't, I don't think that that's what's happening here. But they're just kind of like, this is it. And what do they choose to adorn it with? A star. It's because Numbers 24, 17 said, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel. And he will be called the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. God Almighty, Emmanuel with us. And here's the beauty of the Christmas story. We are invited to be a part of something instead of preserving a little kingdom that eventually we will have to do all kinds of crazy things to keep and protect and preserve. Or maybe we just sit there and wither. Maybe we're being called to a journey, but let me tell you what, the journey to Jesus is worth it because he is Lord God Almighty. He's not the God that says, look at the stars and I'll give you advice for your life. He says, I'm the God that threw those stars into the heaven. I measure them with the tip of my thumb and the tip of my pinky, the span of my hand. Isaiah said it like this, who's measured the stars with the span of his hand? That's who God is. There's nothing wrong with being a self-directed person, but there's something dangerous when we're not taking our cues from the great director of our life. Oh my goodness, the things that God could do for you and through you if you just ignore, if you just acknowledge him as Lord. If you just said, God, what do you think about this? If you just took the things that his word says and said, I don't care how I feel about this, I'm going to do it. The things that the king can do for you. You see, the amazing thing about that birth and the amazing thing about Christmas, none of the gifts go to the person that we're celebrating. Jesus came into this world so that he could gift us with forgiveness and mercy and hope 
and strength and direction and dominion and courage. I don't know what you need, but I know this. You're gonna circle for a long period of time and think that you found it and still come back to the same moment that I'm talking about right here and right now. And that's yielding to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. There are some of you here this morning, you appreciate God, you appreciate Jesus, you've grown up in church, but he's not Lord. In fact, there are times where he prods in your heart and says, that's not the right direction for your life, that's not the right good thing for your life, and, and you disregard it, and those of us that are older, we know what it's like, what happens there. We've got some scars and some bruises from that. I'll never forget when I was in Rhode Island, my pastor's son was just graduating from finance school. And his father was driving him, get an interview, get an interview, get an interview, get a job, get a job, get a job, make money, make money, make money. And he was doing it in a good way as a father. And he was a pastor and he was a godly man and his son was a godly kid. And he decided, you know what, dad, I'm gonna fast and pray. And he began to fast and pray. And he got an interview with Merrill Lynch for a very, very high position. His name is Isaac Manzo. And that morning when the day of his interview came where he was to travel to New York City, something inside of him said, don't go, don't do it. And his father at first was gonna be hard on him saying, what are you doing, son? Why are you like walking away from that? There's no logical reason. He said, dad, I've been fasting. I just, I just, I don't know. I feel like God's just telling me don't do it. So he didn't. Then at nine o'clock in the morning, the first plane flew in. Shortly after that, the second plane flew in and the towers collapsed. And had he not had a life that was listening to God, he would have been in that building. I'll never forget that. Now, that's probably all of us will have one moment like that in our life, but those aren't the moments that make it for us as a follower of Christ. It's the daily decisions. It's the daily choices. It's when we say, you know what? It's the small things over a long period of time that make the big differences. That's called compounded interest. I want a godly life of compounded moral spiritual interest that I might not be able to do a big thing every day, but I can do a little thing over and over again. And then one day I'm gonna wake up and I'm gonna walk out and God's gonna say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. How many of you wanna hear that? I'm gonna ask you to stand to your feet here this morning. And here's what we're committing to. We're gonna invite Jesus to begin to give us a little more hands-on direction for our life. Some of us, we already know what we need to do in our life here. Some of us are here, we know that we're in that box and God's saying it's time for you to stop trying to make my will happen and it's time for you to, to follow my lead. Some of you are in a box of fear and God's saying it's time for you to stop living your life from a disposition of fear. It's time for you to step out in faith. Others of us, God is calling you saying, hey man, it's time to take that journey. Begin that walk of faith because there are great things I want to do in your life. But then there are others of us that were here and you are the greatest holdout in the history of Christianity. You've been to church enough times that you could tell everybody in China about how to be a Christian, but you're not one yourself. You're not one yourself. You've never bowed the knee of your heart as a declaration to say, you're Lord and I'm not. Here's what I'd like to do across this room. I'm gonna ask for you to bow your heads and close your eyes. And if you're here today in the privacy of this moment, 
You're saying, Pastor Paul, I'm that holdout. For the longest period of time, I've done church so much, but I've never really ever given Jesus the title of Lord of my life. If that's you, I want you to lift your hand and say, Pastor, please pray for me. Please pray for me. There are hands all across this room going up. Second thing is this. There's some of you that are just like me. You've got a box and it's called the control of my life. And you're in there for different reasons, whether it's that you're wielding your own universe or you're just there because you're just afraid. And you're saying to yourself, it can't get any better, but if I step out of here, it can get worse. And you're like, I feel like God has something better for me, but I don't know how to change. I don't know how to move. And you're saying, oh, pastor, if God could just reach in and just draw me this morning, saying, I just need God to give me a nudge, that God would like throw me a bone, that God would just help me to know, like, if I step out of this, he's going to be there. If that's you, I want you to raise your hand real quickly saying, I need God to give me that nudge. Hands all over the place. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We all need encouragement and God's going to give it to you. And lastly, this, you're saying, I want to, I want to give God the very best of my life, but I struggle in that surrender. Pastor, could you please pray for me that God would help me to really lay down my life at his feet, the ultimate treasure of my life. But I struggle with this. I'm, I struggle with it, but I want to take a step in that direction that you would pray for me that God would help that. This is my last call for you. If that's you, I want you to just raise your hand. Pray for you where you are here this morning, and we'll dismiss with, with a song after this. This is our altar call right where you are. You're the temple of the Holy Spirit. God's going to visit you right where you're at. Father, right now in the name of Jesus, can we lift our hands here? I want you to just say his name with your mouth. Everybody across this room, just say Jesus. Father, we're calling upon you here call people forward, but I believe you can meet them where they're at. Right now, in the name of Jesus, I pray, Lord, whether it's somebody that's in that box of control or fear, and you're inviting them to a life of faith, I pray that you would begin to give them courage. I pray that your presence would touch them, even now, and remind them what the angel said when this plan of the birth of Jesus began. The angel said over and over again, fear not. Some of you need to hear this. The Lord's saying to you, fear not. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. God brings you tidings of great joy. Father, right now in the name of Jesus, I pray for us, Lord, we've got a journey. And sometimes in this culture, it's so, we don't wanna do anything that requires anything of us, but we just say to you today, Lord, I'm willing to start those steps. This is between, Lord, this isn't between me and my husband or me and my kids or me and my church. This is between me and you. I know that you're calling me on a journey and I need to start taking steps. And I've been looking at your will like a treadmill and I haven't gotten on it, but Lord, I'm telling you right now, I'm gonna totally get into stepping into what you call a life of faith and that you're gonna lead that person into good things. Lord, right now in the name of Jesus, I pray encouragement and drawing would begin in their life. And Lord, lastly, I pray for those that we raised our hands and we say, I struggle with laying my best at the feet of Jesus. Lord, would you show them just how matchless and how mighty, how magnificent and how majestic you are. Would you capture our heart again? Would you remind us that you're the king of our heart, that you left your throne in heaven so that you could rule the hearts of men, but you don't lord yourself over us. You only serve those who wish to be. And so we say across this room this morning, Jesus, be our king, be our Lord, be our Savior. 
Savior. Be our God and lead us, Lord. Help us to follow the light of your presence. Help us to be the people you're calling us to be. Help us to participate in your will and show us one of the greatest holiday seasons we've ever experienced in our life. We give you all the praise and glory in Jesus' name. Wonder if you could sing this song with us at least just once as a declaration of your prayer to God. Be the king of my heart. Be the king of my heart. God bless you as we sing this and we go.